You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we're in week two of a 14-week sermon series through the prophet Hosea, and it's part of an ambition that we have to preach all 12 of the minor prophets in the coming years. We're not going to do them back to back to back because I care about you. And uh, so I'm going to break it up by some different things. Um, but this, one's gonna, this book is going to take us all the way through Advent. And so uh, buckle in. We're just in week two of this. And in light of that, um, I'd like to take just a minute to kind of get us back into the context of where we are this morning. So um, the book of Hosea is unique in that it takes place in, uh, in a time where there's tons of prophetic activity in ancient Israel. The backdrop of the book of Hosea is 8th century northern kingdom of Israel. We're under the reign of King Jeroboam II in the later part of his reign where God gives Hosea to speak these prophecies and to live a testimony of prophecy. But he's not alone. Hosea is a contemporary of several other minor prophets. It includes Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Jonah and who am I forgetting? And Hosea. There's five, right? So five prophets are given by God to the same generation of God's people over the nation of Israel, and we're at a time where the nation is divided, where there's the northern kingdom and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. And so each of these prophets are given distinct ministries where they're scattered throughout the northern and the southern kingdom, speaking these prophecies from God, some of them dedicated to the southern kingdom, some of them dedicated to the northern kingdom, and some, like Jonah, given distinct ministries of even going out to the enemy nation of Assyria to speak a prophecy to them. So there's tons of prophetic activity happening in the 8th century B.C., and here at the latter part of King Jeroboam's reign, we are given the, pro- the words of the prophet Hosea. But Hosea stands out among all the other prophets that we see in, in this period in Israel's history because God calls him to a unique type of prophecy where he's not just to speak the prophetic words that God gives to him, but he is to incarnate or embody them. Where, Ho- where Hosea is actually called to live out a portrait, a theater of what God is trying to communicate to his people, Israel. And so it's, it's, it's pretty wild. It's the only time that we really see that in scripture until Christ himself comes to embody a message uh, from God with his, with his own life. And so you'll remember from chapter one, Pastor Brett taught for us that God calls Hosea to go and marry an unfaithful woman, a woman named Gomer. And he tells him to bear children with this unfaithful woman, Gomer. And then he commands him to name these children very specific names. And the names that God commands Hosea to name these three children are these. One is scattered people, Jezreel. One is no mercy. And one is not my people. And so Hosea the prophet is called. He's now married to a woman who is going to break their marriage covenant, and he has three children who are named Scattered Ones, Not My People, and No Mercy. And you immediately start to see the bleak nature of the the theater, of the story, of the prophecy that God is playing out through the life of Hosea. Chapter 2 doesn't move forward the story of the life and marriage of Hosea so much as we now are introduced to some of the words that God gives the prophet Hosea to start speaking out to the people of Israel. But I want to give you a framework for what's happening here. 
So in this period, the 8th century BC under King Jeroboam II, we know from 2 Kings that King Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that evil thing, there were many, but the evil thing that is in view in the, in the prophet Hosea's words is that there was the, the rampant worship of false idols all throughout the northern kingdom. We read in 2 Kings that, that the King Jeroboam, he, he, did, he did not turn away from the wicked deeds of the kings that came before him. And what we read is that those wicked deeds were that, the, were, were that under Jeroboam I, that all of the priesthood was kicked out of the northern kingdom and that they scattered to Jerusalem and to Judah. And then Jeroboam appointed his own priests and he had them going and offering sacrifices to pagan gods and to false temples and all the rest. He had he'd forsaken all of the commands of God, how they were to be made right with him and, and come up with his own way. And the exceeding wickedness of this under Jeroboam II was unique in that the hand of God, uh, the Second Kings testifies, was, had great favor upon his reign. In fact, they saw economic and military and political prosperity under Jeroboam II unlike any time in their history, uh, save for under Solomon. And, so the, and that was all the Lord. The Lord God had, had allowed Jeroboam to, to restore the national borders of Israel, which had shrunk due to, to the wars with the neighboring countries. And so you see a restored northern kingdom with its right boundaries that God had given them when they came into the land of Canaan. And what we see is Jeroboam II getting all this favor from God and yet offering his worship and his thanks and leading the people to offer their worship and their thanks to these false gods, crediting somebody other than their one true God for this season of prosperity, these 40 years of reign in Jeroboam's life. And so this, when we see the call of God through the prophet Hosea, some of the language of infidelity, of spiritual unfaithfulness, we see it mirrored in the people and we see it mirrored in Hosea's life. And so as you're thinking through the narrative through these 14 chapters, I want you to see Gomer as Israel, Gomer and the consequences of Gomer's infidelity and, and the consequences on her children as an allegory or a metaphor for, for what's going on in the nation of the, of, of the northern kingdom. And in Hosea, I want you to see a portrait of the Christ. I want you to see a portrait of God's enduring faithfulness and love toward his wayward people. And then in the words of Hosea, I want you to see the justice of God and his righteousness. So uh, let's move into it. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins like this. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you've received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. Verse 4. And make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I'll have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore, and she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I'll hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her that she cannot find her paths. So she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall not find them. 
So in verses 1 through 7 and really 1 through 13, I think that this whole chapter of Hosea can be broken into two sections. There's a 1 through 13 where we see the judgment of God and the declaration of the wickedness of the nation of Israel in this section. And then from 14 on through the end, we see the promise of future restoration. And so we're going to see two contrasts in this chapter all that is coming for Israel on account of their rampant sin and idol worship, and all that is coming for them on account of the redemption that is in their future in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about uh, Jeroboam kicking out the priests and kicking out all of the appropriate ways to worship and dwell with God and replace them with all of his own appointed priests and all of their pagan worship, I want you to know that in the land of Canaan, before God turned this land over to the Hebrew people, that there were pre-existing pagan gods that were worshipped in that region that remained worshipped all throughout that region outside of the the borders of Israel, and it was a temptation for them to go and to worship these pagan gods as they, as they entered into diplomatic relationships with the neighboring countries. And that's what was happening rampantly at this point. There's this god, and it's really, his name is, is Baal or Baal. I'm going to call him Baal all day because it's easier for me because I'm an English speaker. So I'm going to call him Baal, but Baal is, is a word that came to mean basically all the pagan gods. Sometimes you're talking about a specific god, and sometimes you're just talking about the Baals, and, and these start to mean all the pagan gods surrounding the nation of Israel. And so rampant Baal worship is happening within the borders of the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam has begun to believe that the economic and the political and the and the military uh, prosperity that he is enjoying is on account of his alliances with these foreign nations and on account of the favor of the pagan gods, the Baals. And so they are, the people are sacrificing to the Baals and they are worshiping the Baals. And some of the natures of this type of worship were quite wicked. And so when we talk about the words like adultery or themes like unfaithfulness, we're not just talking about like they've forgotten God. We're talking about them forsaking and forgetting their one true God and their one true love and going and offering themselves in the fullness of what they're doing to these other gods. Now, in, uh, the, in, in the common Hebrew tongue, the word Baal means husband. The word Baal means owner, depending on how it's used, owner or husband. And so that they would ascribe this word to these pagan gods, it's as if to say, this is where my protection comes from. This is where my provision comes from. It's not merely that I believe in some false god. It's that I'm looking to this false god to be my provision and to be my protection, to be my husband, to be my owner. And so it's very fitting that God would use terms like adultery and terms like unfaithfulness and terms like betrayal to help us to see the grand wickedness of this deed. And so he uses this language, he says, to call out, to plead with your mother. To plead because she's not his wife. She's, she's left her husband, her true husband, the Lord God, and run after these other gods, these other lovers. And, and using some of the strong adult language in this area, what we're seeing is that we're not talking about stumbling into it. We're not talking about fumbling into it. We're not talking about accidentally ending up where, where we didn't want to be. We are talking about the conscious decision to leave my husband and to go and seek out these other lovers because I believe that they are going to meet my needs in yet a greater way than my God will, than my true husband will. 
And of course, New Testament believers, we understand in the marriage allegory that the Lord elevates this in Christ's love for the church. We have been called the bride of Christ, and Christ has been called our bridegroom. And so to turn from him and to turn to other lovers or other gods is, is yet worse because this God has now made himself flesh and he has dwelt among us and he has laid down his life to make us his bride and, and he has filled us with himself. And so idolatry today is as heinous, if not more heinous, as idolatry then. There is a God who has made a people his own by his own covenant and works and those people who belong to him have said, no, this one is my owner. This one is my husband. It is to this God, to this idol, that I fashioned with my own hands that I will worship. Now, when we think about a theology of idolatry, of idols, it's, it's easy to let ourselves off the hook because most of us aren't carving goats and, and, and cows and stuff and then bowing before them to worship. But what I want to hold out to you guys this morning is that the idol comes into existence well before you ever set your hand to a chisel. That when you decide that something that you fashioned with your own hands is something worthy to bow down to and something worthy to worship, you determined that well before you made it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made it. You're making it in order that you might worship it, which means you've already determined in your heart that the works of my own hands are worthy to be praised, are worthy to be worshipped, that ultimately it is my, the efforts of my own hands that are going to provide for me. And this obviously has implications far out into every area of your life, whether it's like, man, my, it, it's, my, it's my diplomatic prowess as I, as I take the, these alliances with other nations and I am able to change my borders and I'm able to bring us into prosperity and we've got money and we've got a great military and all of that. Man, look at what we've done. We're so smart. We're so strong. We're so rich. We're so whatever. But it's not just up on some like national scale with the nation of Israel. The Lord is looking into the hearts of each and every person. And you don't end up there overnight a people of God end up bowing down before a false god after a series of idols have been erected in our hearts. The heart is deceitful beyond all comparison. Who can understand it? We produce idols. And just because you can't see yours doesn't mean you don't have them. And so I want to hold out a sober warning to you guys this morning that you need to check yourself you need to inspect yourself. You need to know, where have I propped up for myself some hope, some security, some giver of love or, or affirmation or some, some, some need that I'm going to have met in something other than my God? Because he alone is to be your husband. When it says... Plead with her to put away the whoring from her face and the adultery from between her breasts. I mean, everybody take your hands like this and put them in the middle. Right here, between the breasts, or in the center of your chest, at your heart. This is the origin of the adultery of the people of God. It starts in the face where we look elsewhere and it works its way right into here where we start to produce 
idols, the heart is an idol factory, it has been said. And so we see an example of this in, in Old Testament Israel, and God is bringing judgment against them. Now his judgment, though, I want you to see it in verse 5. It says, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. He says, that's why she said it. So she says, I'm going to go after my lovers. Think, think this through in your life. I'm going to go after my lovers, my false gods, my other hopes, my idols. I'm going to go after them. Why? Because they give me my bread. Because they give me my drink. Because they give me my wool. They give me my flax. They give me my oil. They give me my drink. The reason why we like our idols is because in our, in our idolatry, really, it's always us who is God. You're giving me what I'm due. You're giving me what I require. You're giving me what I need. I need my wool. I need my flax. I need my oil. I need my drink. I need my water. I need my bread. And I'm going to go after these guys because they're going to give it to me. And it's all mine. They're giving me what is mine. And then there's a therefore in verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Even in the judgments of God, what we're seeing is the love of God. He's saying, you're, you're intent, you're really intent on this, my bride. You are intent on forging a path to your other lovers. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it an obstacle course. I'm going to hedge it up with thorns. I mean, parents, you know all about this. When your children have determined to sin and they're going to do whatever they can do to get to this thing that they're sure that they need, what do you do? You, 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 can't, you can't change their hearts, but what do you do? You hedge up their way. You make it harder on them. If you're intent on hurting yourself, I'm going to make it harder for you, aren't I? The Lord does far more than that. He hedges up her way with thorns. He builds a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, verse 7, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. So even in his act of judgment against his, his, his wife Israel, he is loving her. He is preventing her from getting that which she seeks, not out of spite, but out of care. Because then she will say at the end of verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. The purpose in hedging up her way and throwing up the thorns and blocking the path and, 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 and putting her up against a wall is to, is to have her come to the end of herself and to recognize, I need to return to my first husband. It was him all along who was providing me these things. When I chase after these, I don't receive what I thought I needed. I will go back to the Lord. And this is why we named the title of this sermon series, Return to the Lord a wayward people, and the God who calls them home. 
when the Lord pours out his righteous judgments against sin, the purpose in it is to have you taste that bitter taste that you might turn to the wretched water that you are drinking and flee back to the fountain of living water that you might have eternal life. And so church, I charge you and I ask you, are you tasting that bitter water? Are you chasing after idols? Have you, has your heart produced things that are offering to you um, all of the things that you think you need, your security and your, and your affirmations and all of that? Are you beset with lust? Uh, not just, not just like, like sexual lust, but are you beset with lust for the world? To ask this world to give to you what you have received abundantly in Christ Jesus. Because if you have, you will find that everything apart from God is a finite resource and will leave you parched and exposed and naked. You need the covering of your God. It is the only permanent source of security is the shelter that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're tasting that bitter taste if the Lord has caused that water that you thought was going to be your deliverance to taste bitter in your mouth, rejoice because he has brought you to the end of your sin that you might return to him. And today is the day of repentance for you if the Lord has made you to taste the consequences of your sin. She didn't know it was I who gave her the grain. It was I who gave her the wine. It was I who gave her the oil. It was I who lavished on her silver and gold, which they then used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain. I will take back my wine. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. So all of these things, which in the previous verse he had described as, in her mind as being my flax and my oil and my water and my bread, he said, it was I who gave it, and I'm going to take back my wine and my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Verse 11, and I will put an end to all of her mirth and her feasts and her new moons and her Sabbaths and all of her appointed feasts, all this pointing to the pagan rituals, that the nation of Israel was observing. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. See, church, the wages of sin are death. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the great wickedness of pride in man looks out at all the goodness given to them by the Lord. And we say, these are my wages. The, the, these are my earnings. This is what I am owed. This is what I have earned. This is what the labor of my hands has produced. We look at the goodness of God, the gifts of God, the way that he has covered us, the way that he has provided for us, the way that he has tenderly sought to care for us, and we say, that is what I was owed. These are my wages. And he says, no, these are not the wages that your lovers have given you. These are good gifts from your father, and I'm taking them back. I will make them a forest, verse 12. The beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and she adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And isn't this the last step of idolatry? 
First we find a charge against him. First we accuse him. First we find something better in some lesser form of righteousness, some lesser God. We throw ourselves at our idols and before long we forget the Lord. We forget the Lord. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. The therefore of all that, taking back the flax, taking back the wool, taking back the water, taking back all of it. I'm gonna, you, th you think it was yours? You think you found it at the hands of your lovers? I'm taking it all back. Why? Well, therefore, I will allure her back unto myself, take her into that wilderness, and there I will speak tenderly to her. And she is going to remember the Lord of her youth as in the days of the land of Egypt. It made me think of Exodus chapter 33 and verse 15 where Moses is just about to enter into the promised land after all those years of wandering. And rampant sin has marked those 40 years in the wilderness, but the Lord dealt patiently with them with all the bitter water made sweet and the manna from heaven and the quails and all the, the pillar of the cloud and the fire by night and all, all the wonders of the wilderness, right? And he would gather with Moses in the tent of meeting. There's, I mean, you guys know the story of the Exodus. And the 40 years is up and they're coming into the promised land. And God says that his presence is not going to go with Moses. And Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He says, I'd rather be out here in the wilderness with you, God, than go into the land flowing with milk and honey without your presence. You are my milk and honey. You are my flax and oil. You are my wool. You are my covering. And if your presence is not going with me, then I don't need the promised land. What makes the promised land the promised land is that you said you were going to be with us. Do not depart from me, Lord God. And this same sin is what beset the minds of the, Isra of the Israelis in this period in their history. In the 8th century, they forgot the Lord and they embraced their borders. They said, they said it's, our, it's our borders that make us great. It's our allegiances. It's our prosperity. It's our milk and honey that make us great. And they forgot the Lord and the Lord said, I'll take the milk and honey and I'll give you me out there in the wilderness and I'll speak tenderly with you and you will remember me like you knew me in the days of when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and in that place of the wilderness you will say I don't want the milk and honey if I can't have you We will learn to rejoice when the Lord brings us into that place. When the Lord is taking from you, he's never actually taking from you. He is taking those things which are taking you away from him. And he replaces all of your lesser hopes with himself. In that day, verse 16, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal. I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no 
more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you to lie down in safety and betroth you to me forever. Betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. I mean, come on, friends. What a promise. And what a warning. They were calling God Baal. They were calling God Baal. You call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my Baal. I'm going to remove the words from their mouth. And this is where I have to say to you, uh, there's the part of me that wants to say to you, church, repent, seek out the, the, the places where you're saying that that's God, but it's not really God. You're really worshiping this false item. You've got to stop doing that, and you've got to start doing this. But what does God say? He takes responsibility for what needs to take place in the heart of the idolater, and it is this. He says, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. No longer will you call me Baal. It is something that the Lord declares. The Lord God must do this for you. The idolater cannot make himself right with God. The idolater cannot forsake his wicked ways and his strength. The Lord God must speak over you a declaration. The word, the names of the Baals will no longer be in your mouth. You will no longer call me my Baal. That is what happened for you if you are a Christian. The Lord God removed the mouth of idolatry from your lips. He removed the spirit of idolatry from your heart and he indwelled you with his own holy spirit it is only by his power that you can confess with your lips that jesus christ is lord that is a work of god and so if you are ensnared in idolatry and you and you cannot separate god from the from the gods of your own hands what you need is a work of god on your behalf and i implore you to plead with him just like he commanded the prophet to plead with the mother to plead you are not my husband. You are not my God. The evidence of my life is that, uh, is that I have fashioned for myself my own God, that I am my God, and you fall before him, and you repent, and you call on him for mercy, and you look to these promises, and you say, I think I've got a shot at receiving it, not because of anything good in me, but because of the good promises of God, who gives these promises of redemption to the people in the midst of their rebellion. The promises of the gospel are for the unbeliever in the midst of their rebellion because we know the love of God in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While they were yet in their rebellion, God spoke this promise of deliverance that he would come and remove the name of the Baals from their mouth and he would betroth them to himself in faithfulness. And this is what he has done for the church when he says, you shall know the Lord. What did I read this morning during the, during the child that I read to you some, some stuff from Deuteronomy about the commands of God to write the, the law of the Lord on the doorpost and to teach it on to the next generation. But in this new way, the Holy Spirit indwelling the Holy, in, in, in dwelling the Holy Church has given them all the words of God. No longer do you need to pass it on in the same way as before, but it is passed on by the Holy Spirit himself so that you can know the Lord your God, not just up here but that you can taste and see it because he himself has made you his temple. He dwells with you. He is your God and you are his people. Amen.
And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, they will answer the earth, the earth will answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So he tells Hosea in chapter 1, these three babies, name them Jezreel, name them not my people, name them no mercy. Jezreel means scattered one. He says uh, they're going to answer Jezreel and make the grain to, to, to grow again, the wine to flow again, the oil to flow again. It will no longer be a scattered land, Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. For no mercy, I will say to her, I will have mercy. For not my people, I will say, you are my people, and you will say, you are my God. This is the promise of God in Hosea, but it's carried out in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who came, God himself, took on flesh, like Hosea was asked to embody this gospel story in his pursuit of his unfaithful wife. God, in pursuit of his unfaithful bride, came and embodied this gospel message. He walked among us in the form of the flesh, and he laid down that life, after living the life that you were meant to live, laid down his life in a death that you were due to die, then he took up his life again, resurrected from the dead, giving you victory over death by faith in him. If you want to be made right with God, there is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so I implore you, if you are new here this morning, if this is the first time that your ears have been opened by God to hear this, today is your day to repent and call on the Lord for the alien righteousness that you need because you cannot, by the works of your own hands, make yourself to prosper before God. It can't be done. All these years, Israel labored to make herself right with God by obedience or by effort, and it can't be done. Christ said, in my efforts alone, in the merits of my life, death, and resurrection alone, can you be made right with the Father. And so we cling to him by faith alone. And that's something that we then walk in for the rest of our lives. And so, church whether you're hearing this for the first time this morning or whether you're hearing it for the thousandth time, I tell you that the indwelling Holy Spirit enables you to notice an idol from a mile off. And when your heart starts to produce an idol, starts to want to take your face and look away from the Lord, the Holy Spirit forbids it. He wars for you. He fights for you. He reveals to you. He convicts you. And each time that you feel and hear and read the conviction of the Spirit to return to the Lord, you just return to the Lord. This is something that He's enabled in you, that you can know the difference between sin and righteousness, and you can sprint back to your Lord of righteousness, and you do it by confession and repentance, and so that's how we're going to respond. I'm going to give you guys a time now, as I pray, to seek out within you, where have I fashioned for myself idols? Where have I fashioned for myself lesser forms of righteousness? Where have I started to look away from the Lord? Where is God showing me to repent and to return and to cling to Christ alone for my salvation and for my security and for my future? And when he shows you those things, I'm going to ask you guys to call on him for for the forgiveness that you've received in Christ Jesus, to rest in his finished work, and to turn from our wicked ways, and to thank him for his work of saving us from our idolatrous hearts. Let's do that now.